Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. It's the last word of the environment time with John Gibbons and he's about to take flight, telling us all about why turbulence on planes is getting worse. Why so? Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, this is a study from the, uh, from, from the University of Reading in the UK. And what they found, Matt, is that um, severe turbulence has increased by about 55% in this study between 1979 and 2020. And most of this is occurring across the the North Atlantic routes. And they put it down really to changes in wind speed at high altitude, which again is because of the warming um, atmosphere. And I think the, the scientists who put the study together sort of before they got the results they projected as much but they wanted to look at compare compare their their estimations with the actual data and that's how it came out and i suppose there's different types of turbulence some turbulence for example is related to storms and this can be predicted so for example if there's a storm system you often get associated turbulence pilots know about this and they can steer around it but there's a much more uh, worrying type of tur- turbulence called clear air turbulence where you're in the plane the pilot sees nothing and just bang, the plane drops 50, 60 feet. So that's the type of turbulence that's increasing, this so-called clear air turbulence. Now, the, that band, if you like, that, that jet aircraft fly to and from across the, across the Atlantic in particular, as we know, is called, is called um, the jet stream. That's a, it's a band of high altitude, fast moving air that moves basically from west to east. That's why it's much quicker, for example, coming back from New York to, to, to Dublin than it is going the other direction. You get an extra 150 kilometres uh, per hour in the jet stream. But essentially the jet stream, the reason that that, that high altitude current exists is it has to do with the difference in, in temperature between the equator and the poles. So the poles at the moment are warming four times faster than anywhere else on Earth. So the balance is shifting. This is causing a couple of things. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 yeah. finish off. Yeah, it's causing a couple of things, Matt. We've talked about it before. We're getting a waviness in the jet stream where we're getting plunges of cold air and we're getting plunges of hot air. That's when the jet stream waves. But the other thing that's doing is the jet stream is intensifying. And what we're getting with this intensification, one of the side effects of this intensification is an increase in turbulence. There's basically faster moving air. Okay, but isn't there a positive in this and that if it allows the aircraft to move faster between destinations, therefore you get fewer emissions from that aircraft. And also, with artificial intelligence and with a greater understanding of the patterns of the airflows, that it's going to be easier for the planes to plot a line, which again saves on the use of fuel. Well, I'll start with your first one. I suppose it's it's a bit like saying that driving a car downhill saves fuel. Yes, it does, assuming you don't have to drive the car back uphill again. So essentially, that kind of evens out between going west and going east. And by the way, this is not just a North Atlantic phenomenon. We're also seeing this in the South Atlantic. We're even seeing it across the Middle East. So it's a, it's a global phenomenon. And just to, to return briefly to the study, uh, looking out towards the mid-century, they're, they're projecting a further increases in turbulence up to 180% above today's levels, Matt. So we can expect a much, much bumpier ride across the North Atlantic uh, in the years ahead. Now, they're not suggesting, for example, that this turbulence is likely to be powerful enough, for example, to knock an aircraft from the sky. Turbulence typically is very frightening for passengers, but it's extremely, extraordinarily rare for turbulence to be strong enough to actually down an aircraft. So that would be a different issue. Okay, let's move on. And you have identified what you think is now becoming the single most ecologically destructive human behaviour. 
That's right, Matt, and I think it's uh, very much in the, in the headlines the last couple of years between the, the, the Ukraine war and obviously the, the, the Gaza war in more recent times, and this essentially is the rise in militarism. Or the, I mean, militarism never went away, let's be honest, but we're seeing, we're li- now living through an era of intensive militarism. So, and intensive destruction. Yes, there's many aspects and Not just of human lives, no, I mean, but of the physical environment as absolutely. well. Absolutely, I mean, militarism and the, the problems that go with it, uh, including the ecological problems, they're, multi, they're multi-phase. But to give you a couple of stats on this... In 2022, 56 countries worldwide were involved in some form of violent conflict. Now, this is a major increase over the last four decades. So we had that period around after the end of the Cold War where we had, we had what appeared to be, I think it was somebody called it the end of history, where all the old conflicts, the old Cold War conflicts were behind us. Well, of course, that turned out to be an illusion. What we now find is we're in a very dangerous, multipolar world uh, and militarism, we're seeing the rise of this. And of course, Matt, it's happening at the worst possible time. Um, overall, it's reckoned that about 5.5% of all global carbon emissions are directly related to the world's militaries, just them. Now, again, you compare that, for example, to aviation. Uh, it's, it's even bigger than aviation. Now, if, if, mili- if the world's militaries were a country, they would be the fourth largest country on earth. And I think it's also important to say that a lot of the uh, military activity, by its definition, is shrouded in, in secrecy. For example, the US insisted on having m- military emissions excluded from the Kyoto Accords back in the 90s. And even as recently as the recent uh, COP28 conference, we're still not getting hard data. And more importantly... Sorry, when you say military emissions, is this the result even of sort of experiments such as bomb tests? testing or weapons testing on top of the actual damage done by the destruction of buildings and infrastructure, which is one of the things that is happening, for example, in Gaza, on top of the mass murder of innocent people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to start with, the world's militaries are vast. They use enormous amounts of fuel. Uh, for example, keeping a, a fighter jet in the aircraft in the air about every hour, it's burning maybe several thousand liters of fuel. These are enormously uh, energy intensive, and of course, because their demands are for for the ability to to do violence, if you like, the the the, the efficiency, the carbon efficiency, and so on. Basically, it doesn't come into the equation. And as I say, they've been excluded from global carbon accounting as well. But you you're absolutely right. The other side of it, and again, this is what the US military call, they describe climate change as what's called a threat multiplier. And I'll give you a small example of that, Matt. The, the, the devastating drought in Syria that hit between about 2008 to 2011, the worst drought in 800 years. That drought, it, not by itself, uh, it, it obviously required a political situation as well, but it was the touch paper that lit off the, the Syrian civil war that continues to, to rage to this day. So the point is, I guess, that military conflict is making climate change worse for the reasons that you've described, the ecological destruction, the destruction of resources, but in turn, climate change is making military conflict more likely. And a particular example of this, by the way, uh, this is a recent study in Nature Sustainability. They found that conflicts involving water have risen, uh, for example, in the decade to 2010, there were about 25 incidents a year globally involving water. These are, these are military incidents. In 2022, there were 250. So as the world gets hotter and drier, it's getting more violent. And this is not, this is not unexpected, but we're really seeing this ratchet up. And it is also, as you, as you said, in relation to Gaza, utterly tragic that at a time when we, 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 we should be, I guess, reducing our impacts that instead we're seeing such, such wanton devastation uh, of, of housing and, and infrastructure that at some point will have to be rebuilt at incredible cost. Okay, one last thing. 
the Amazon rainforest could hit a tipping point by 2050 because of water stress, land clearance and climate disruption, it has been claimed. But what does it mean by a tipping point? A tipping point for what? Sure. The first thing to say about the about any rainforest is that a rainforest is a self-perpetuating uh, climatic condition. In other words, the forest itself, Matt, produces the water vapour and the rainfall. So so the forest produces the rain and the rain produces the forest. Now, a forest can can cope with a certain amount of drought and a certain amount of, of deforestation and still have its, its uh, hydrological cycle intact. Beyond a certain tipping point, essentially, it loses so much uh, ecological integrity that that cycle, the water cycle, the hydrological cycle breaks down and the evaporation that keeps the, the, the rainforest alive, that fails, that system breaks down. And what happens essentially, Matt, is the entire Amazon or large chunks of the Amazon switch from rainforest to savanna. To, and basically, you could be look at a situation in a matter of maybe 10 years where vast tracts, as far as the eye could see in any direction of, of a rainforest, spontaneously, basically, that forest system collapses. Because remember, this is happening at the tropics. The only reason why you can have lush forests in such a hot location is because it's so dense damp and so wet. As soon as that, that cycle is broken, the high temperatures mean the whole thing goes up in flames. So this is bad news, of course, for all kinds of reasons. The Amazon, for example, we know produces a lot of the oxygen that we breathe. We also know that the Amazon is a critical function. It cycles billions of tonnes of water into the atmosphere. It affects not just the regional uh, temperatures and regional uh, meteorology in South America, but its impacts can be felt across Europe and even into Asia. So it's a really critical cog in the global uh, climatic machine. A lot of the land is cleared for cattle farming. Wouldn't it be much better if we were actually producing the cattle here rather than there in Brazil? Yeah, it'd be much better if we stopped clearing land, not just to feed cattle, not to feed the cattle that are there, Matt, but also a lot of the land being cleared in South America is being cleared not to feed cattle in South America, but to grow soya to ship it out to feed cattle in places like Ireland. But still, the point I'm making is is that rather than cutting back on our agricultural output and doing deals that allow the Brazilians to increase theirs, we should be the ones who are producing the more environmentally friendly foodstuffs rather than them, given the damage that could be done to the Amazon, which is far greater than any damage we do here in Ireland. Well, of course, we no longer have any original ecology left in Ireland. I mean, if you were a Brazilian sitting across from us here today, he'd say, guys, what do you mean we should preserve our rainforest? Look look at Ireland. You've got nothing left. You you effectively have an ecological desert. So don't be telling us to preserve our rainforest. What, what are you guys doing? So I think I'd be very careful about that argument. And I would stress the most useful thing that countries like Ireland can do to help to preserve the Amazon rainforest is to stop importing uh, feedstuffs from there. John Gibbons, thank you as ever for being with us. We'll see you next Thursday for The Last Word in the Environment. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.